Welcome to the podcast of Outpost Church in McLarenvale, where we seek to be apprentices of Jesus. We are currently looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which can be found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is announcing the kingdom of heaven with its implications for every aspect of our lives. There is so much for us to learn and to put into practice. Let's get into it with this teaching from our Sunday gathering. We commit our time together to you. We ask that it would be of great benefit to each one of us. And we ask that it would also be of benefit to those that are not here. I pray that you would do a mighty work in us and right across this region. In Jesus' name, hallelujah and amen. You guys may take a seat. Feel free just to give a quick wave, maybe a nod to someone that uh, you haven't yet greeted this afternoon. It's good to have you here. It is good to be together. So I learned fairly early on in my teaching career that it's really important to watch the sayings that I use in different contexts. So my first ever class was a year one class. Everyone just goes, no. They were little, and they were cute. And I had this one kid called Martin. And Martin, I actually taught for four and a half years. Not because he repeated year one that many times, but because I changed what classes I was teaching. And it just so happened that over a five and a half year stretch, I had Martin for four and a half years, and his little brother for the other year. A lot of Martins. Anyway, this one particular occasion early on, uh, probably a month into me teaching for the first time, um, and Martin was pretty down. Um, and there was an incident with headbutting. I had no idea about this incident with headbutting, um, but he was pretty upset about it. And then I asked a few more questions, and I found out that I was the one that told him about the headbutting. And then they continued on a bit longer, and I'm getting more and more confused about exactly what did happen. Um, and then finally, I can't remember how the connection was made, um, but there had been a little incident with, with Martin and Jake a little while earlier. And I was, you know, giving a little pep talk and encouraging them to come back together after they had butted heads. So I just mentioned that phrase, you know, butting heads, um, as though, you know, they'd had a bit of an argument, a bit of a disagreement, and they needed to be reconciled. And so his little mind is just worrying about how he'd headbutted Jake, and he was upset that I was accusing him of headbutting Jake. And that's where we ended up at this moment of needing to bring, you know, some understanding uh, to, to what had happened. So I'm curious, I am curious, that's a really good lead in, Margot, I am curious for you, like, is there a saying that you have, apparently I often say for mine, so Christy reflected back that fairly recently, I'll often say for mine and then give my opinion on something, is there a saying for you that you often use and perhaps one that has confused others, or is there a saying that someone else uses? Maybe it's like. That, that might catch on. I reckon that you may have introduced that one to South Australia. Nice work. <laughs> nice. 
Well, Jesus was known to, to use a few sayings, and it's a, it's a helpful one for us to be able to dig into the context of what he's saying, um, and ideally to be able to understand the history, you know, of how sayings were used uh, during that time. There's a, a classic one. Can anyone finish this Bible quote? Many are called, but few are chosen. Does anyone know where it comes from? Excellent. Does anyone know what it means? What does it mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. So the chosen are few as well. (laughs) The chosen, there it is. Does anybody know what parable comes immediately after? Yeah, the wedding banquet. Can anyone tell me anything about the parable of the wedding banquet? That wasn't a parable. That was an actual event where Jesus was at a wedding. But there was a parable that Jesus told. And he starts off by telling about a king that was throwing a banquet. And they send out everyone to go on. They already obviously sent out invitations, but it's time to bring everyone in. And so they send out the servants, they go to bring everyone in, but what's the problem? They didn't come. They're too busy, there's different things they've got on, and I've just got married, I can't come. That's my favorite excuse. But then there's all different excuses, like I've just planted a vineyard, or I planted a uh, sowed a field, I can't come. There's all these different reasons that they can't come. (laughs) I just got married, I can't come. Um, And at the end of this one, so what happens next? What's the... In the parable that Jesus tells, what's the king's response to everyone who doesn't come? What's the the next step? He is angry, and there is some wrath inflicted on those that didn't come. Yes? But then, what does he do? Yeah. Go out to the highways and byways and just bring them all in. And then you've got another bit that's really confronting, where everyone comes in, and the banquet's on, and then the master of the feast comes in and someone's not wearing the right gear. And so they get sent out where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pretty confronting. And then Jesus says that famous line, many are called, but few are chosen. If you just hear many are called, but few are chosen, you're like, oh, so not many people have the opportunity to enter the kingdom. If you follow on from that parable, where by the end of it, everyone has been invited. Like, oh, that takes on a bit of a different slant. And if you understand that the person who wasn't wearing the right gear, if you understand that he had the right gear but chose not to wear it, that's a change up as well. Because otherwise you're like, oh, that's not fair. The guy was speechless. He's thrown out. He's not wearing the right gear. But he had it available to him. He chose not to wear it. Suddenly it changes your whole perception of the parable, changes your whole perception of the quote that Jesus said. So we're going to look at one today where Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Hmm. Does this tie in to the previous chapter where Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. How is your left hand going to know what your right hand is doing (laughs) if it's removed from your body? That could work really well. Big secret. Someone else is using it. Someone's got your hand. They're now using it. 
your left hand has no idea what your right hand is doing. Clearly, that's what Jesus is saying when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What does he mean? What do you reckon? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How do you know it's about giving? It sure is the context. And how would you know the context? Got to read it, yeah. Well, how about we open up some Bibles and we go to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to read, for a start, the first four verses. And we're going to, as you notice, this is a bit of a a different um, order of service than normal. But whether you're young, whether you're old, I encourage you to grab a Bible. So kids, there's still some more Bibles that are here. There's also the kids' Bibles as well, if you want to grab any of those. We are Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 6. What are we in the middle of when we're in Matthew chapter 6? Seven on the Mount. Yeah. So Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 is all what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. And chapter 6 from verse 1. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. You might just pause there. Does anybody know another part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says something that seems to contradict that? Yeah. That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Interesting. So if we, you know, be ready to bounce back to Matthew 6 very shortly. Um, But if we go back uh, to chapter 5, and we go to verse 16, where it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Because it says, in the same way, we better back it up and read what comes before it. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Put your hand up if you are the light of the world. Yeah. And the more us put our hand up, the more impressive that is, isn't it? More hands, brighter the light. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, in the same way that you're not covering up a light, because that light is destined to shine it's designed to shine you don't cover it up in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven all right now how do we reconcile that where Shane, for such a good exposition on that passage. Um, it's definitely challenging. I, I'm excited about the, I hope I'm not ruining it by sharing this, but the, the thing of, um, I've never really thought to actually plan 
to do something with the sole purpose of doing it in secret. Like, I'm going to do something. I'm not going to tell anyone. I won't tell Shane. I won't tell anyone. Just do something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm such... What's that? Yeah, but people have known about it. So that's the thing. I've done stuff, but it's like, oh, by the way, I did this. So does that ruin it? So just to do it for the pure thing of having a little secret... spot on. I think that's that's the, the biggest thing is the purpose behind doing it. Is it so that they can see you? And if you keep reading, which I highly recommend, otherwise, this is the rest of verse one, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. And then we keep reading, we get an understanding of what it means to practice your righteousness. Could you read that phrase? Don't practice your righteousness before others. You're like, what does that even mean? And we keep reading. It does mean to demonstrate. So keep reading. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So some translations will say, will openly reward you. Um, that's not in the oldest manuscripts that we have, um, but that word openly seems to have been added in later on. But it's an interesting one. So there's a section in a number of, of books on the spiritual disciplines, which talks about secrecy. And secrecy just sounds really dodgy. You're like, we're going to practice secrecy. It's like, oh, welcome to the cult. Um, this is where that idea of practicing secrecy comes from. What they mean in those books that talk about secrecy as a spiritual discipline is that you will intentionally do things and make sure no one else knows that it was you. And the reason that you would do that is so that you can free yourself from the need to be seen, free yourself from the need to have that approval. And sometimes it's a clear authority Sometimes it's your boss, your parent, your teacher. And to free yourself from not having to have them acknowledge what you've done, not even to know what you've done. And so you're intentionally doing things that no one knows that you did. So that it becomes a more and more natural thing. Secrecy is not the goal. The goal is not that no one ever knows that you've done anything good. It's not that you should... Everyone thinks you're only ever lying on the couch doing nothing all day. But every time, no one's looking like you're sneaking off and doing really nice stuff. It's not actually the goal. It's not about having a perception that you're lazy and mean. <laughs> That's not the goal. The goal is that you can do good things without anyone noticing. That you are not reliant on having someone watching in order for you to do what you should be doing all the time anyway. And when we do the right thing and people catch us doing the right thing, 
What are we looking to do? We're looking to deflect the glory to the one who is good 100% of the time. He is always completely, thoroughly, utterly, amazingly good. And we want people to recognize that. And if they see something of him in us that is praiseworthy, then we want to tell them where we got the capacity to do that. We want it to result in praise and glory to him. There's so much stuff in this passage, and it's it's worth our time. It's worth digging in and, and investing in it. The rest of this idea of secrecy comes in with, with prayer and with fasting. And we'll look at that in the weeks to come. But this idea that prayer is not a show and fasting is not a show, we see that a little bit in our culture, but very different back then. It was far more common for fasting to be a practice. And so people wanted to get the credit when they were fasting. So they wanted to make it really clear they were fasting. And so others would see that and go, oh, wow, you're amazing, you're spiritual. And the same with the prayers. They would put on a show. And we can do that today. And this is saying, let your audience be one. It's a cliche, but it's a helpful cliche to live for an audience of one, to live where it is one that we're actually seeking the approval from. And it's God Almighty. And it's an interesting thing, This the whole thing of rewards. So have a look in your translation. How many times does the word reward appear in those four verses from verse 1 to verse 4? How many times? Did you count already, Hud? Yeah, I know. So different translations will have a different number of times. I'm just curious for yours. How many times does the word reward appear? Does anyone have that less or more than three? Yeah, wh- Two times? So the word reward, what are the two options? There's two potential rewards according to those four verses. What are the two potential rewards? Yeah. And what's the reward from people? Potentially praise, yeah? Applause, reputation. So it's people seeing you do something that's good or impressive, generous, right? They have already received their reward because others have seen them do it. And the alternative is that God would give us the reward. What's that reward going to be? Potentially. It doesn't say, does it? It doesn't say what the reward is. It doesn't say it's going to be cash. It doesn't say it's going to be a massive house or an impressive car. We've got two massive errors that we can get into um, in this whole area of rewards. So within the church, there's, there's two massive errors. So one is to say that God doesn't give us rewards. And we just do what we do because it's obedience and we just need to focus on that. Yes, we do what we do because it's obedient. But 
the Bible's pretty clear that it gives us rewards. If you want to complete the rest of this sentence, anyone who um, approaches God must believe that he exists and that he He's the rewarder of those who diligently, earnestly, whatever the word is, seek him. So he rewards those who seek him. Yes, he rewards. I've heard some people preach and it's coming against the idea that God would give rewards. He gives rewards. I don't think there's any way around that if we believe what the Bible says. He gives rewards. But then you've got what's often labeled the prosperity gospel, where it is prescribed what those rewards are. If you do this, if you give this, and what it often ends up being is, if you give to my ministry, then you will receive back in an abundance in material possessions. We are called to give and to give generously. But as soon as someone who's the person directly receiving what you're giving is telling you how much you are personally going to be financially blessed at what, because of what you're giving to them, an alarm bell should be going off for us. We have a good and generous Father. He knows what we need before we ask Him, yet He delights in our asking. We are to come to Him expecting that He'll take care of us and expecting that He will reward us. We don't prescribe what those rewards are. But they're inevitable. If we are doing what He wants us to do, He will reward us. It doesn't mean it's going to be financial reward. It doesn't mean things are going to be easy for us in a financial sense in this life. But we will be rewarded. There are so many tools in His tool belt so many different gold stars uh, that he can rip out, so many different ways that he can reward and bless us. And let's not limit that by thinking it's going to be financial. All right. So when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, we've got it in context a bit better now. So you were saying before, Ernie, that it's to do with, with giving. Any more insight on what do you reckon it means? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. helpful I reckon it's got a bit to do with automaticity as well being automatic having something be so familiar to us and so natural that we're not actually thinking about it like those times when you're driving somewhere and it's such a familiar route that you can't remember the last 10 minutes of driving 
like you've been actively driving, you were conscious and you were diligent, you were safe on the road, and yet you weren't aware of what you were doing in a sense because it's so familiar. I was um, putting a stroller together earlier today. It's a running stroller and it normally just stays um, upright in our house. And I took it apart a little while ago to put it in the car, which is fairly rare. And I was putting it back together again today. I'm like, this is not automatic. I've got to really think this through. I'm like, oh, where does this part go again? And what is this doing? It's not familiar because I haven't done it that many times. I'm not doing it regularly. And so it's a conscious effort for me to do it. So my left hand is very aware of what my right hand is doing. So I'm thinking about it a lot. It's like when I first started putting on this watch, and it's a different kind of wristband. When I first started doing it, it took me quite a while. And now it's easy as. It becomes familiar over time. We don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing because it's such a natural thing to give. When there's a need and we've got the means by which to meet that need, then we do it. And I've seen that in operation amongst you. I've seen you reach out and in different ways. I've seen Rob, I've seen you with the means that you have give generously to others in practical stuff. I've seen you, Julie, the way that you remember details when you ask someone about something and they give you details and then you follow up with them. That's being generous with your time and it's an automatic thing for you where of course you'll follow up and you'll ask details about those sorts of things. Just simple things and, and it's different, but it's significant and it matters. For Christy and myself, we decided that we were going to give 10% to the church. And there's times that we've pushed into that and we've pushed higher than that. But the thing from the start of our marriage was that we would give financially to the church. And so now it's not a, a question each week. We're not thinking about, oh, are we going to tithe this week? Are we going to give in this area? And we chose we were going to give sacrificially to, um, to missions and do stuff as well as that. And it's not a question of whether we're going to do that from week to week. We've literally set things up with our bank so we don't have to think about it. But it's a habit and it's something that we just do. And so our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing in the sense that it's so familiar and it's automatic and it's what we do. I'm going to jump over how to pray, the model prayer, how to fast, because we're going to hit those up in a couple of weeks. And we're going to finish by looking at God and possessions and have a chance to reflect on this uh, for a few minutes. So verse 19 of chapter 6 says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the middle paragraph of these three, from verse 19 to 24, is one of those ones where it's a saying that Jesus uses. And 
it's an easy one to get a bit confused about. Like, what is he getting at? The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? If all we had to go on was those two verses and everyone had to come up with what it means and what the application is for your life. And then we collated those. I'm pretty sure we'd end up with a fairly broad range of ideas. But if you've got that, and on either side of it, it's talking about your treasures. It's talking about don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And at the end, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. It directs us a fair bit, doesn't it? It gives us, based on the context of what's being said, immediately before and immediately after, it gives us a bit more um, to go on. We're going to do two things now. So one is, I want to make a comment about taking stuff personally, and then I want us to take some stuff personally. You up for it? So end of chapter 5, we preached on love your enemies, go the second mile. It's pretty full-on stuff where Jesus is saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where he says, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Really intense stuff from Jesus. We have a tendency in our culture to get sucked in to the tyranny of the hypothetical. We don't allow Scripture to do its full work on us because of all the what-ifs. So we have a passage like that one where it's talking about loving your enemies and we start thinking about all the things our enemies could potentially do to us that would make it impossible for us to love them. Not the things that have happened to us, because I think that's right, but we start thinking about, oh, what if this was to happen? I don't think I could forgive someone then, and we write off the whole thing. Or what if it wasn't me that they were doing something against? What if it was someone else? And then the last thought we have about something is a reason why it doesn't apply to us right here, right now. If we read that passage, we see that it's all directly involving us. So the go the second mile, this is chapter 5 from verse 38. If we skip down a little bit to verse 40, the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's very personal. It's not about what's happened to somebody else. It's not about what might happen to you in the future. It's about responding to what has happened to you up to this point, so that you're ready, no matter what happens to you in the future, to respond well. And so when it comes to how to give, when it comes to don't store up for yourselves, treasures on earth. Don't be too easy on yourself by getting sucked in 
to the tyranny of the hypothetical. The hypothetical, you end up just thinking about the what-ifs. You end up going and not applying the scripture to your life because you're concerned about what's happened to somebody else or you're concerned about what could potentially happen to you in the future. One, one way it plays out in a really negative way is, it's all, I think, negative, but one way it plays out is someone will tell us about what's happened to them. And then our first thought is like, oh, if that happened to me, I don't know how I'll be able to cope or to go on. And we're starting to think about ourselves rather than just responding in kindness for that person and praying for that person for them to have faith to be able to get through what's going on. And so we end up in hypotheticals for ourselves rather than in the real situation with somebody else. Or we balk from the actual implication for us in our life from Scripture because we're coming up with cases as to where it wouldn't apply. Is that getting clearer? So Jesus implores us to not be focused on storing up stuff for ourselves here on earth, but rather storing up stuff in heaven. Because it's incorruptible, nothing can happen to the stuff that you store up in heaven. I don't believe that storing up stuff in heaven means we can only access it once we die, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's a one-way thing. I talked about this before. The drink bottle that I can't find today um, has a one-way valve. And so it's really handy when you have a two-year-old who's very capable at backwashing. If you're sharing a drink bottle and it's a one-way valve and she can only draw in, she can't like spit back into your drink bottle, how good is that? Pure water. We have a one-way valve, like when it comes, and it's, it's an imperfect, because we're just talking about storing up stuff in heaven. So we are actually influencing what's in heaven. But in terms of there's nothing that is corrupt that can enter heaven. So we can't put anything negative into the kingdom of heaven. It just doesn't work. It can't happen. We can draw from what is pure and perfect even right now. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth because there's all these problems that can happen with it. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of it, none of that corruption can take place. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If it's all about getting that new car, if it's all about getting the bigger house, if it's all about whatever temptation there might be, our heart's going to go there too. It's going to be the ultimate focus of our lives. There's a lot I want to say into this, but I'm going to leave it. I'm going to pray and have a chance just to, to sit and let's do application ourselves. Like let, let's think through what is it in this area of finances that we are convicted about as we read this.
So, Father, we commit this to you. We thank you that you are trustworthy. I want to commit to you, every single person here, and acknowledge that there is great diversity. When it comes to finances, there is massive diversity in this room. I want to acknowledge that we are all very privileged to live in Australia and to have the access to, um, to goods and services like we do, uh, to have the, the finances that we do, um, but also acknowledge that there's all sorts of stuff going on amongst all of us here. I pray that we would take the challenge that you are presenting. I pray that we would receive your rebuke where there's rebuke, your encouragement where there's encouragement, and that we would follow through accordingly. So have your way in us, have your way in this space, and bring conviction, bring encouragement, and show us what our next steps are. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to leave that with you. I want to leave what the application is. So read it again. Read these, these passages. Um, and in a couple of minutes, we're going to head out and Chris is going to lead us through what's happening with some prayer. Um, but we're just going to sit with this for a moment. Um, and so feel free to reread that, to write some things down, punch it out in your phone. But what's the application for you? What does it look like today? to respond to what Jesus says here? What does it look like over the coming week and month? Let's...